This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Well, the momentum of the war against Russia has shifted in favour of Ukraine. In recent weeks, thousands of Russian soldiers have been killed, wounded or captured across northeastern Ukraine. Now, in response, Vladimir Putin, he's announced an escalation and the mobilisation of an additional 300,000 reservists. He's also made nuclear threats. So, is a desperate Putin a dangerous Putin? Giselle Donnelly is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Emma Ashford is a senior fellow at the Stimson Centre. Both are based in Washington. If Giselle Putin used nuclear weapons, and it is a big big if, but if he used them to prevent a defeat and humiliation for Russia, how do you think the West would respond given the divisions there? I mean, France, Italy, Germany, they have raised the prospect of finding a, a peace settlement in Ukraine. How would the West respond in the event of a Russian nuclear option? There are not very many military targets uh, that make likely uh, targets for, say, a tactical uh, nuclear weapon. (laughs) The Russians can't find anything that moves faster than a city. Um, And so to use it on a a city would be a huge escalation. To do a demonstration shot, say, over the Black Sea, as some people have said, would risk Western escalation. The Biden administration has been very, you know, tentative and cautious about not pushing Putin too far. But, you know, a demonstration nuclear shot would sort of have all the negatives in the sense that it would increase the likelihood that the United States and its allies would uh, regard that as a reason uh, for an overwhelming conventional response. Uh, So it has huge downsides for the Russians. And uh, I'm not sure that it has too many positives. It doesn't you know, harm Ukraine or the Ukrainian army in any way. And all it would do would to make Russia a greater pariah than it already is. But Emma, isn't a desperate Putin a dangerous Putin? The way to think about this is to think about the questions that that Putin, that Russian leaders are, are asking themselves right now. Um, and they and, and Putin is in a very classic authoritarian wartime dilemma which is he's probably trying to decide which is worse for his domestic stability. Is losing in Ukraine worse um, and risking, you know, whatever backlash that brings from sort of conservative nationalist uh, right wing in in Russia? Is that going to be worse Um, or is escalating perhaps, you know, declaring an actual war, calling up reserves um, and then dealing with the fallout from some of the masses in Russia who may not support that. Will that be worse for his popularity? And this, I think, is a real dilemma because I, I don't know that he has any particularly good options. Um, and so, again, I think, you know, the nuclear option, I think, is quite unlikely here. But it, it's not a good place to have a nuclear armed autocrat is, you know, backed into a corner where he doesn't have many good options. Um, that's, that's not the safest place for everybody to be. And that brutal autocrat is surrounded by Russian nationalists who think he's too soft. So Giselle, how do we deal with the prospect of an even more hyper-Russian nationalist Kremlin? If you look at the military bloggers and the nationalist uh, Russian television, for example, they have kind of neatly separated Putin from the military leadership. So, you know, whether... Putin can sidestep the blame for failure and pin it on the senior commander. I mean, he's changed uh, a lot of his commanders, you know, on a regular basis already. And the the conservative critique in Russia is that the military command has not properly executed Putin's design. So God only knows what uh, is going on behind the curtain in the Kremlin. But, you know, to your earlier point, I mean, Vladimir Putin is a dangerous guy every time he gets out of bed. He's been a dangerous guy for 20 years. Is is it better to have a dangerous guy who's going from success to success or a dangerous guy who's going from defeat, defeat to defeat? 
both are dangerous, but mm. uh, I, I would say that a defeated Putin is less dangerous than a successful Putin. Well, that was Giselle Donnelly, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Emma Ashford, a senior fellow at the Stimson Centre. Both are based in Washington. Now, in our next episode, more detailed analysis of Ukraine's resistance, Russia's escalation, and the West's response. Up next, what Australia might learn from Europe's energy crisis. Europe's energy crisis is likely to get worse during the northern winter. How often have we heard that? So we really need to understand the cause of this looming energy disaster. Now, the conventional wisdom, it blames primarily the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it's true, the Ukraine conflict and the resulting energy disruptions, they've certainly squeezed supplies and pushed up natural gas prices. I think that's well understood. But the question here is, are there underlying causes for Europe's energy misery? That's the question. Remember, in recent decades, Europe has laboured to reduce its carbon footprint by replacing fossil fuels with renewable energy. Remember, too, the ambition in Brussels, it's a widespread view, to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. But have those emissions reductions come at the cost of less reliable energy and greater vulnerability to Vladimir Putin. Joseph Sternberg is a columnist and editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal. He's based in London. Joe, welcome back to the program. Uh, Hey, Tom, it's great to be back. Now, we're all too often told that the Ukraine crisis is responsible for Europe's energy crisis. You have a different view. Tell us more. Well, I think this is one of those uh, policy instances where you really have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, because, I mean, it's absolutely the case that um, Europe would not be experiencing the kind and and severity of energy crisis that it's experiencing now, were it not for uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the various energy sanctions and, um, you know, Putin's exploitation of uh, Europe's dependence on Russian gas in the wake of that event. So, I mean... That part of the argument is correct, but it's just incomplete because I think that you always have to understand that shocks happen and um, you have to come up with some kind of energy system in particular because uh, energy is so important to a modern economy that will be resilient in the face of uh, political or geostrategic shocks of the sort that Europe has experienced over the past six months. And I think that that lack of resilience is the original sin here that has made the current crisis so much worse than it necessarily needed to be. Um, And that lack of resilience has taken a bunch of different forms. I mean, one of those forms is just this basic emphasis over the past couple decades on over-investing in renewable technologies like wind and solar that are just not reliable enough at the current state of technology to power advanced industrial economies where you do need power around the clock, whether or not the wind is uh, blowing or the sun is shining. So already you were baking in a certain amount of unreliability into your power network. At the same time, you know, for various uh, you know, cultural and environmental reasons that have nothing to do directly with carbon policy, uh, you've had a hostility developing to nuclear power. So a lot of European countries have been weaning themselves off of a power source that really would have bolstered Europe's resilience in the face of a crisis by providing reliable baseload power uh, through nuclear. And then, you know, certainly there's been an understanding that a shift toward natural gas uh, to the extent that economies were using fossil fuels would be much better for the environment than coal would be. But because of the broader, longer term net zero ambition in Europe, there has been a real hostility to tapping domestic gas resources that Europe has. I mean, there long, long ago, there was a very brief attenuated debate about fracking in, in Germany where there are deposits of shale gas that Germany could be tapping. And that debate never really went anywhere, uh, partly because of nimbyism. People didn't want um, gas drilling in their backyard, and partly because of a broader hostility to uh, gas exploration on environmental grounds. And so I think that it's all of these factors 
mean that, uh, you know, certainly the invasion of Ukraine would have pushed up energy prices no matter what, because it would interfere with the global supply of these important energy resources. Uh, but it was not inevitable that it was going to create a crisis of the depth that Europe is experiencing right now. And there is an element of policy choice uh, that Europe has made that has led them to this point. Well, tell us more how it's led to this surging cost blowout. I mean, households, consumers, business, all across Europe and Britain. Well, I, I, you know, this operates a, across a couple of dimensions here. And so I think the, the first issue that's really important and is particularly important in the case of Germany, which I've been following uh, pretty closely because it is Europe's largest economy, um, mm. I, I think that the discussion about renewables and a lot of these uh, policy arguments about uh, energy policy has obscured a really important fact, which is that uh, renewables like wind and solar can only generate electricity. Now, I mean, electricity is obviously very important, but that is not the only source of energy that advanced economies consume. And so one challenge has been that uh, they were investing very heavily in particular technologies to generate electricity and that even then don't necessarily do that very well all the time. Uh, while they were paying insufficient attention to how they were going to power all of the parts of the economy that, that don't run on electricity. So I think that uh, in Germany, in, in industry in particular, and really in households across Europe, you have direct connections to the grid for natural gas. Um, you know, some 86% of households in England, where I live, heat their, you know, do their central heating and hot water using boilers that are fired by natural gas. Um, not electricity. I think that the, the big economic problem in Germany right now is all of the industries that are dependent on that gas connection because they're using equipment like, like furnaces that are built to fire on gas instead of to be heated by electricity. So you already had this problem with a lot of these green energy policies that were focusing on sources of energy that don't necessarily provide the energy reliably or in a form that consumers need it. Um, and, you know, the, the failure to really think through the consequences of that and the fact that, you know, we are going to continue consuming fossil fuels, especially natural gas. And so we had better make sure that we are investing in diverse supplies of those fossil fuels so that we will not be vulnerable to these geostrategic shocks. You mentioned Germany, the Eurozone's largest economy, as you say. Uh, the political class there now, including the governing Greens, they, they, they of course, uh, are in a coalition, they are promoting coal production, correct? Uh, yes. I mean, this is the other thing that is going terribly wrong with uh, Europe's energy transition now. It turns out that the alternative to uh, Russian natural gas is not windmills and solar, it's coal. Um, and you know, that is, I, I know who, who would have thought, but, and, and this has actually been a long running problem in Germany where, um, you know, even before the Ukraine war, they had invested so heavily in renewables only to discover a, a bunch of problems. I mean, it, you know, this transition is not an easy thing to do. And, you know, it's not just building the windmills or the solar farms. You also have to build all of the high-density transmission lines to get the electricity from the places where the wind blows and the sun shines most consistently to the parts of a country that actually have the heavy industry. And this has also been a big problem, not just for Germany, but for a lot of other countries in Europe as well. Um, you know, the failure to plan for moving renewable electricity around once they've managed to generate it. And so uh, all along, the pattern has been that they would fall back on coal uh, because that happens to be a fossil fuel resource that they have a lot of that can be produced within parts of the European Union, such as, as Poland. And in an additional irony, the kinds of coal that are available to be mined in the, the EU tend to be the dirtier forms. Um, so I think that it was this real failure to understand that you're not going to be able, it's just technologically impossible to wean yourself off of uh, fossil fuels entirely in anything like the time span that people are talking about. Uh, even if you set your net zero carbon emissions deadline as you know, relatively late as 2050, 
you're still not going to get there. You're going to need the fossil fuels. And Europe avoided hard discussions about which fossil fuels they would need and where those should come from. My guest is Joseph Sternberg. He's a columnist and editorial board member at the Wall Street Journal. Joe, the corporate world, the financial world would disagree with a lot of what you're saying because, and in fairness to them, the value of green finance raised by capital marks, particularly the UK in the EU capital markets, it's happening here in Australia too, that's grown rapidly in recent years. And as you've written in the Wall Street Journal, the world's central banks, they're introducing, you know, different types of climate stress testing into their oversight. So doesn't that suggest widespread confidence uh, in the financial community, at least, in the net zero emissions agenda, despite the energy crisis? Uh, No, I don't think it does. I think that what a lot of that activity expresses is investors' confidence that these bad policies are going to persist, um, just despite all evidence that they are bad policies. Because I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the problem here is that um, these net zero policies have distorted an awful lot of investment and financial decisions over the past couple of decades so that you've seen a lot of capital pouring into technologies like wind and solar that are not really capable of meeting advanced advanced economies uh, energy needs while you have seen uh, you know not as much capital as perhaps you know, economies need pouring into things like uh, natural gas extraction in Europe or into nuclear, even though, I mean, in a country like the UK, uh, they are belatedly rediscovering the virtues of nuclear power. Um, So, I mean, you you have to be careful not Mm. to interpret a lot of these market signals as actual market signals about the uh, underlying energy system. They are market signals about where people think policy is headed and what investors expect policymakers and politicians will continue to subsidize in the future. Okay, to the extent that you're right, Joe, is this a threat to financial stability? Well, I I think that it increasingly is. Um, Now, I mean, the the counter-argument to that, and I think that the reason that financial regulators like central banks have, um, you know, inserted themselves into these arguments is that there is a school of thought that would say, look, climate change is going to um, potentially have big effects on the economy. And so, you know, to the extent that you have big changes and climate patterns, droughts showing up in new places, uh, floods uh, becoming more frequent in other places. There are potential financial consequences to that. Um, you know, particularly, you know, one example that often comes up here is if you think that flooding is going to become a more persistent problem in some regions in the future, that has big consequences for insurance markets, for example. Now, there are two problems with this. And the first is uh, that a lot of those future climactic effects are actually very difficult to pin down. Uh, and to the extent that you can, uh, market participants already have incentives to try to account for that. Uh, I mean, no rational flood insurer or reinsurer is going to operate, you know, being deliberately ignorant of the risks that flooding might become more frequent in a region in the future. So a lot of that is already baked into the cake uh, or, or should be. And meantime, it overlooks this much shorter term problem, which is the thing that I'm, I'm increasingly concerned about, which is that the rising energy prices that are triggered by all of these net zero policies are creating a business crisis for small businesses, for medium-sized enterprises, for large businesses. And you're increasingly seeing concerns that these high energy costs might push uh, some of those businesses into bankruptcy. you know, there's an estimate that you could have tens of thousands, potentially a hundred thousand British businesses could be forced into insolvency uh, over the next few years. Uh, you know, on the back of higher energy prices, uh, you're creating additional stress for what would otherwise be healthy going concerns. Um, and you know, that a wave of bankruptcy is not good for financial stability. So you know, that is a a danger. Uh, to the financial system of some of these energy policies that we aren't adequately accounting for. And that brings me finally to Australia. Now, uh, I know you covered the Australian climate debates closely when you were uh, an editorial writer at the Asian Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong. 
10 to 15 years ago, Joe, but since then there has been a changing political climate in this country. There is now a, a political business media, a green consensus that exists. And there's a widespread belief uh, in Australia that clean, affordable, reliable energy sources will rapidly emerge, even though, of course, Australia is still uh, busily exporting a lot of fossil fuels abroad, which helps prop up the Australian economy, but never mind that. Um, Given everything you've been saying about the European crisis, do you think there are lessons to be drawn here uh, for Australia? Well, look, I am not a defeatist about the technological challenges of renewables here. I mean, one of the big problems that you have is battery technology to store the power that's generated, um, you know, to save it until times when people need it. Um, And, you know, there is a lot of work, a lot of investment going on into a bunch of technologies. I mean, batteries, hydrogen technologies, a lot of these you know, green options. And I have incredible faith in the ability of advanced economies to innovate in that way. But I think that we, the, the big lesson that a country like Australia needs to learn from the disaster that's unfolding in, in Europe and in, also in parts of the US right now is that you have to build energy policies that are based on a realistic assessment of where the technology is today. So I think that structuring an entire economy around uh, your hope that a technology will exist in the near future that will meet your energy needs is not a strategy at all. And in fact, you know, that failure of strategy is the thing that has contributed to um, you know, Europe's problems right now. So I think that the, the big lesson that places like Australia should be extracting here is yes, I mean, uh, continue encouraging innovators and entrepreneurs to invest in a wide range of technologies, not just batteries, not just hydrogen, but I mean, think completely outside of the box. Do what advanced uh, capitalist economies do best, which is to innovate the next thing that no one has even thought of yet. Um, But while we are waiting for that innovation to happen, you need to build an energy policy that makes sense based on the technology that is available today because you need the energy today. Joseph Sternberg, he's a columnist and editorial board member at The Wall Street Journal. Up next, historian James Curran and what a diminished sense of Britishness means for Australian identity and the pursuit of a republic. Well, the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, that coincided with not just the fall of the British Empire, but the end of Britishness in Australia's social psychology. So you might think that the end of her long era augurs well for the Republican movement in this country. Well, my next guest says it's more complicated and that the onus is now on Republicans to explain why only an Australian head of state can provide the basis of reassurance and belonging for a modern 21st century nation. James Curran is co-author with Stuart Ward of The Unknown Nation, Australia After Empire. He's also a professor of modern history at the University of Sydney and a columnist at the Australian Financial Review. James, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much, Tom. Now let's start with some history. During the 19th century, Australians, or at least the non-Indigenous population, they saw themselves as British, and it's not really surprising, we remained a British colony after all. But even after Federation in 1901, it's your contention that Britishness still had a profound impact on our national psychology. Tell us more. Well, I think, as you say, Federation in 1901, I mean, we federated uh, but remained under the under the British Crown, so we became a nation but stayed within the British Empire. I think the key point here is to stress that Australia's response to the age of mass nationalism and the coming of modernisation with all the rapid social, technical and industrial change that that brought on, Australia's answer to that era with its need for nationalism took a British race form. I mean, the key test for any nationalism is the idea of being one people and Australians at that point uh, defined themselves as being white and British and they saw in their links to Britain um, you know, the commonality in terms of their history and heritage and their language and literature. That's, of course, not to say that they didn't have a, an affection for their local environment, that their local demography gave them a different outlook on particular uh, issues. 
But the point was that even at that point, an Australian nationalism was mutually reinforcing with this sense of British race patriotism. Okay, so that sense of nationalism and Britishness, the intriguing thing about your thesis is that you argue this lasted as recently as the early 1960s. Yeah, that's right. Um, Now, there's been a lot of scholarship about this in recent years, of course. There's been a huge um, sort of interest in Australia's experience of empire, as there has been with other former members of the British Empire around the globe. Um, It's not to say, of course, that Australia didn't have significant disagreements with London, particularly when they felt that their own interests in the Pacific were being largely ignored or downplayed uh, by by British political leaders. But as the historian Neville Meany has argued, um, the web of culture, uh, what he calls the web of culture, sort of closed in over each disagreement. Um, and and sort of made each one into a passing sort of crisis or a temporary aberration. Uh, there was never a sense up until the early 1960s where there was a fundamental break. Australia fought two world wars, of course, by Britain's side. And, um, you know, even even after the fall of Singapore in 1942, Tom, I mean, you had... You had mm-hmm. Labor Prime Ministers, Curtin and Chifley, trying to trying to resuscitate the discredited idea of imperial defence. So mm-hmm, that the sense mm-hmm. that Australia was going to move away from its from its British moorings, even after the shock of being let down so badly over over Singapore, mm-hmm, um, it simply mm-hmm. didn't happen. Anglo-Australian Defence Cooperation, for example, was at its height in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yes, you mentioned Professor Neville Maney. We should stress uh, that he was a friend and mentor to both of us, and he died last year, and we miss him very much. And I think his argument, uh, as well as yours, and I think this is probably the conventional wisdom to the extent that we there's a consensus about this sense of Britishness in the Australian national psyche. Mm. The high point was that royal tour mm. in 1954. And in your recent AFR column, James, I was quite struck by this. You mentioned mm. a political cartoon <laughs> depicting the New South Wales Labor Premier, Joe Carl, standing at Circular P. What's its significance? Well, that royal tour, of course, was the first time that a reigning monarch had set foot on Australian soil. I mean, Mm. you know, the Sydney Morning Herald defined her as the kind of uh, the supreme achievement of the British race uh, during that visit. The crowds which came out were the largest ever in Australian history to that point, apart from when they greeted the the Great White Fleet back in 1908. Um, The the, the Bulletin magazine, you know, that great organ Mm. of Bush nationalism, said that the Queen's visit on this occasion had completed the nationhood of Australia, right? Quite intriguing language when you think about it. But the Irish Catholic Premier, J.J. Carl, Joe Carl, was by the Queen's side at almost every moment while she was in New South Wales on that tour. She, of course, covered the country, but he was by her side at every point. So when she left Australia and sailed out through Sydney Heads, he was um, depicted in a, a cartoon by the famous political cartoonist George Finey as looking rather rather downcast, rather despondent, rather lost, and the, the caption underneath the cartoon simply said, alone. And uh, the significance of it, of course, <laughs> is, is that, you know, so often you get the pushback on this kind of idea of Britishness. Oh, it was only, it was only a, a conservative politician of a certain type that wanted to press the royal flesh. No, like Menzies, I mean, for example, yeah. Exactly. But, um, you know, there are there were some in the Labor Party at this time. Jack Lang, the former New South Wales Premier, was, was particularly vocal on how he noticed a lot of Labor politicians being duchessed, you know, when, when they were near the royals. Um, they, they became quite starstruck by it. They wanted to, they wanted to have all the, the bells and whistles of, um, of royal pomp and ceremony just as much as their political opponents. The, you know, the worst word you could be called in the Labor language, in the Labor language, apart from being a rat, was was to say, well, he's been duchessed, <laughs> been duchessed on a trip to London. He's now he's now part of the imperial fold, right? So yeah. So this is the 1954 royal tour. Yet within a decade, these imperial imaginings collapsed. Why? Well, um, these were there were two shocks to Australia's sense of um, uh, of empire and its and its uh, connection with Britain, and the two critical shocks were Britain's application to join the European Community in the early 1960s. Now that was rebuffed by General de Gaulle, of course, who feared that the that the um, that Britain coming into the European Community would have a whole lot of former dominions on its shoulders and would be a stalking horse for the Americans as well. The East of Suez announcement by British governments where they decided that they could no longer afford that global military presence, they were pulling their military out of um, Southeast Asia. These were the twin shocks 
that really ruptured the economic and defence nexus of the Anglo-Australian relationship. And when they pulled out the military, when they announced that in the late 60s, in 67, uh, the headlines in Australian newspapers, in the tabloids in particular, were ones of shock and panic. One that I particularly recall uh, seeing in the archives was uh, Far East Death Warrant. That was, I think, the Daily Mirror. Uh, wow. And uh, one of the, the Melbourne Sun, I think, said, waken to our peril. So, again, mm. forget about Joe Carl thinking he was alone in 1954. There was a real sense now yes. uh, that Australia had to make its own way in the region. What did all that mean for national identity? Because you're basically saying that from the early 60s and throughout the 70s, Australia went from an unashamed embrace of Britishness mm. to something different. What was that? Well, it was a period called the new nationalism, and it was fundamentally new because it wasn't British. And there was a, a kind of a, a scramble on the part of successive governments from Harold Holt onwards to kind of shore up the foundations of, of Australian nationhood, to give this country a set of civic rights and rituals and national symbols that, that didn't rely on a British heritage. Now, it was an incredibly complex and complicated time, a confused time, an unsettling time, and, and it took those governments... Uh, including the Whitlam Labor government um, from 1972, it took a great deal of time to settle on what the alternatives would be for these symbols, right? There was no easy replacement. You know, Australia, unlike um, other countries, say Kenya and Ghana and India, didn't have a, a pre-modern past which they could reach back and say, oh, that's what makes us Australian, so we'll use those symbols. No, there was, mm. there was consternation. You know, that's always been the dilemma. It's easier to do to dismiss the familiar than it is to invoke the new, and that's a that's the very problem, in a way, that the Republican debate faces today. James Curran is co-author with Stuart Ward of The Unknown Nation, Australia After Empire. Professor Curran's most recent books include Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear, and Campisi, The Last of the Dream Sellers. James, let's bring this to the Republican debate now. As you've made pretty clear, the status of the monarchy in this country, it was rarely questioned in the political mainstream, but things obviously changed in the early to mid-1990s when Paul Keating uh, put the Republic firmly on the agenda. Before we get to the here and now, now, Mm. did Keating's embrace of republicanism, did that win him a new political constituency? Uh, well, I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I think the interesting thing about Keating is that the the arguments over Australia's relationship with Britain and his prime ministership did start with some almighty fireworks being let off about Keating's view of uh, Britain's betrayal of Australia at Singapore. What's interesting is that throughout his prime ministership, as he starts to make um, the argument for a republic, is that he recalibrates. He realises that he can't draw an imaginary fault line down the national community and say, well, look, they're a true Australian you know, um, gum tree nationalists on one side and fawning old dead tree British Philistines bootlicking toadies <laughs> on the other. He then, he then, he then starts to recognise that yes, there was this sense of sentiment and unity around the British crown and around the monarchy um, during the 1950s. That Menzies had in fact encapsulated that. So he starts to he starts to sort of reach out to those who might have felt alienated by his by his previous rhetoric. I think he realises that. That radical nationalist pom bashing is not going to find um, a, a new constituency here. I mean, that that is the interesting thing that 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 kind of tale of heroic sort of struggle against Britain has never really found or tapped deep roots. Mm. I think in the national community, even though there's a strong Irish Catholic constituency in the country. Well, well, this is right. I mean, you look at the numbers of Irish Catholics that joined up in the first AIF in 1914-15, they were approximate to their representation in the community. I mentioned Curtin and Chifley before. These were Irish Catholics who mm-hmm, defined mm-hmm. Australia as a British-speaking race, um, mm. a British-speaking race. I mean, think about that phrase. Um, mm, so, mm. no, I mean, I, um, you know, Keating, Keating as well had a very different – I mean, he had two Britons. You know, he had the Britain that had led Australia down in World War II, but he had the Britain of Churchill in the 1930s that had stood up to Hitler and called him out as a criminal, and he had a love of Elgar um, and Elgar's music. I mean, there is a British sensibility to Keating that I think is not mm. sufficiently well understood uh, in mm. terms of, you know, there, there were two two views of Britain that, that jostled uneasily, I think, um, you know, in, in Keating's outlook. And, I mean, you only need to look at his statement on the death of the Queen. It was, it was quite... Um, Quite yeah. a moving statement and quite and quite a profound one. 
And James, you, you make this point very clear in your recent AFR column that uh, Gough Whitlam mm. uh, in 1973, in designating the monarch as mm. the Queen of Australia, he said That's he wanted right. to make the monarchy a closer and more relevant institution for Australians. My guest is James Curran. Now, on the Republic, it obviously, mm. the referendum failed in 1999, so mm. 23 years ago, and the leader of that movement, Malcolm Turnbull, mm-hmm. he's among other Republicans, James, who says that, you know, the Queen's passing would be the appropriate time to revisit the subject. I suppose the question here is, is that moment likely to take place in coming years under a pro-Republic Labor Prime Minister? Well, time will tell. I mean, clearly Mr Albanese's mind um, at the moment is on the voice to Parliament. He he has studiously... um, neglected to raise the issue in the aftermath of the Queen's passing. He doesn't want to go there. He's he's retreated to the safety of the kind of picket line of protocol, if you like, and, and I think he's hoping that no one will notice. At some point, if he is serious, and we know that he's appointed a minister for the Republic, um, he's going to have to lead the argument um, as to the relevance of a republic. I mean, it has been languishing in stagnant pools, as you say, for those 23 years. And the normal clincher of republican polemics, that is that you've got a head of state, the anomaly of having a head of state that resides overseas, I don't think is going to be enough. One of the things that the republican movement will have to do, and I, and I say this uh, as a supporter of it, is that it has to firstly shed the arrogance of insistence and the assumption of inevitability, and it's going to get, get it's got to purge itself of all this kind of what I call rhetorical arthritis, which thinks that it can <laughs> that it can mobilise this kind of old jingoistic um, sort of tale of Australian nationhood struggling to break free from its British incubus. It's got to drop all that, and it's got to come up with an argument about what the republic means for the common good. How is it actually going to? improve, you know, um, this country's image, its identity, its outlook on the world, what's it actually going to mean? There are some really careful arguments to be to be thought through. You know, one of the problems for the Republican movement in the 90s was that, that, was that the Republic issue was being asked to carry too much. It was going to solve all of Australia's post-imperial dilemmas. It was going to solve the problem of nationhood. It was going to, it was going to encapsulate Indigenous reconciliation, engagement with Asia, and this, as I say, this issue of identity. Now, it, it may well be that that's too much for it to bear. So it may well be that we see much more of a move back to the kind of minimalist models. Um, and I think the other point, Tom, is we have to remember that uh, some, you know, recent trends in world politics, you know, the emergence of populist nationalism and presidents like Donald Trump in the United States are not really giving... Um, uh, you know, republics a great name. I mean, there there is a bit of a. Mm. I think there is a bit of a stench coming out of the recent surge and tide of populism across much of the mm-hmm. Western world, which won't make the arguments for a republic any easier. Yes, take that, Peter Fitzsimons. <laughs> now, all the available polling evidence, James, it does show that in the last uh, two weeks or so since the mm. Queen's passing, support for retaining the monarch as head of state. It rose mm. from something like 45% in January to about 55% since the Queen's death. So that just reaffirms mm. your point about the difficulties with selling the Republic. Now, here's a final question from the other end of the, the d- debate on this issue. We've got the outpouring of obviously global mourning for the Queen and we had the mm. world's leaders flocking to London this week for her funeral. But taken together with the broad Australian public support for AUKUS, and you've written a lot about this nuclear security deal with Britain mm. and America, taken together with the British withdrawal from the European Union, you know, we talked mm. earlier about the British entry into the European common market in the early 70s, does that all suggest that Canberra and London actually might develop closer relations in coming years, especially with the rise of a more assertive China? James Curran. Well, I think there will be a lot of language around that. I think there'll be a lot of symbolic cooperation. Um, I think the leaders, as we saw Anthony Albanese do with with the British Prime Minister Liz Truss in recent days, I think there'll be a lot of fine rhetoric to come out of this. And there certainly was has been a lot of fine rhetoric around AUKUS, but we still don't have the detail and we don't know how it's going to work and we don't know whether Australia's going to have, be able to develop this civil nuclear capability to, to get these nuclear submarines into the water at a time that we need them. I think we'd be far better off continuing on the course, I think, that the current Labor government 
has made it pretty clear that they want to be engaging a lot more with Southeast Asia and listening to those countries in terms of how they approach the problem of dealing with a rise in China, but also wanting the United States to remain engaged. I think there's a, a, a relationship that's got to be rebuilt with the French, given their presence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, you know, I think I think global Britain and the idea that, it, that it's going to recalibrate or pivot back to Asia, I haven't seen enough detail yet to really convince me that that has a great deal of substance. So you're not going to see any Prime Minister, Labor or Liberal in recent years, start to sort of talk, talk in, in a rude or shocking way about getting rid of Britain or cutting ties or... Or, or, you know, attenuating the links with London. But I think when we see the actual substance in terms of what uh, Britain is doing in this part of the world compared to others, like the French, um, I, think, I think that will be very limited. James, always great to have you on RN. Thanks, Tom. James Curran is Professor of Modern History at the University of Sydney. And for more on James's views on China, read his new book called Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear, or listen to James on my RN colleague Geraldine Doog's show, Saturday Extra. That was from August 6. Up next, the pandemic and the inside story of Australia's two years of hell. Now, remember back in the early days of the pandemic, so I'm thinking March, April 2020, that's when the death toll suddenly took off in places like Northern Italy and New York. And then just when you thought we'd been through the worst of it, another wave strikes and the same thing happened again in India. Now, closer to home, we watched as case numbers and deaths, they rose. Our cities, how could we forget? They became ghost towns, didn't they? The future looked pretty bleak and frightening for a while, didn't it? To make sense of all that happened between 2020 and 2022, two senior journalists have documented how Australia responded to the pandemic. Jeff Chambers is the Australian newspaper's chief political correspondent, and his co-author, Simon Benson, is the political editor at The Australian. Their book is titled Plagued, Australia's Two Years of Hell, The Inside Story. It's published by Pantera. What we tried to do was capture what was going on at the time inside the government, what they believed they were faced with, what they feared they would be faced with, and the decisions that were made in response, and often with an extraordinary immediacy. What we tried to do was capture what people were thinking at the time uh, without using hindsight as a, a reflective tool, if you like, for, for, for book writing. Well, let's go back to January 23, 2020. Now, China locks down millions of people in three big cities. How did Australia take the news and what did it do? Well, I think one of the illuminating elements of the book is just how Australia did, did respond, but what was going on behind the scenes. Chief Medical Officer Brendan Murphy, who is now a household name, uh, who no one had ever heard of before. I think he was in uh, he was in Italy on holidays at the time, and he'd been getting uh, reports about this strange new virus that you know was coming out of China. And his instinctive response was to be a bit concerned about it. You know that that triggered an immediate response internally. Uh, he took a a very serious interest in it. I mean, I think that historically those things have occurred, uh, you know, with some regularity and, and there's a lot of precedent for, for viruses that have emerged uh, through similar sort of mechanisms as this one did. And and, uh, and I, I guess from the health department's point of view, from Brendan Murphy's point of view, there was always a fear of when is the next pandemic coming? It was always a matter of, sort of uh, when, not if. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, obviously, but I, I recall he, he when he got back from Italy, he, he rang Red Hunt and uh, he was getting some of the epidemiology coming back from Europe and from China as well, and he got very worried about it. And Australia was really one of the first countries to 
start triggering internal responses to what they feared this thing might be. And uh, one of those was setting up the National uh, Response Unit in the Department of Health in Canberra. There was a early talk about uh, closing the borders internally. There was there was early talk about that. And, of course, we were one of the first in the world to shut the border to China in response. And, and we were the first country in the world to actually declare it a pandemic. I think probably two and a half, four weeks before the WHO decided to kick into gear. And context is so important here. We had the droughts. We had uh, the bushfires, of course. How could we forget them? And of course, Morrison was slammed over his Hawaiian holiday during the fires. His father died, I think, during that period. It was so when COVID hits, it's uh, the latest in a string of bad news and challenging times. There was an interesting conversation between Greg Hunt and, and Scott, and I think the bushfires were a backdrop to that. And I think Hunt was of the mind that they did not want to get caught behind on this thing if it really took off. So there was certainly a political sense within government that they wanted to get ahead of the curve on this, get ahead of it very early, um, considering all the other things they were dealing with at the time, as you rightly pointed out. I mean, I think that day it was a day from hell for, for Morrison. I think his, his father had passed away the night before. He got the briefing in the morning from, from Brendan about how serious this thing was going to be. You know, there, there was an argument later on that the government were late to act on certain things, but... It, one of the interesting things about that day was a press conference they held where it was the first time uh, Morrison addressed the, the, the virus in that press conference that morning and uh, he didn't get a single question asked about it. I mean, the national mood wasn't there yet. Politically, there's always a sense that, while you want it, you need to be a couple of steps ahead of where the national mood is. You can't be too far ahead, but you certainly can't be behind. And I think that was... You know, there was a, a, a deep sense of political necessity as well as obviously the national interest and responsibility of government, but there was definitely a deep political element to their very early response to this. I think it's fair to say that um, as the pandemic became more and more serious and the cases were rising, the supply chains were clogging and there was panic buying setting in. I remember when the toilet paper, <laughs> all that drama and <laughs> yes. the rat test, yeah. It was it was two years of hell, as you say, but what were some of the low points of Morrison's handling of the pandemic? I think you can actually track that through the, the published polls, I think. I mean, you know, from March 2020 to probably for the, the next 12 months, his approval ratings were stratospheric. They were... Uh, you know, 60, 70%. For the first phase of the pandemic, there was a sense that the government had really handled things very well. And and obviously all the data pointed to that, that we had very low death rates and the economy was uh, rebounding very well and, and had been insulated better than most countries. But it all started to go a bit pear-shaped in, in the sort of second phase of the second year, if you like. And the vaccination rollout, and as you mentioned, the rats um, really became yeah. problematic. This is a key point. I mean, I'm, I've always been struck by this. You had very low death rates in Australia, high levels of vaccinations, and you mm. had the JobKeeper program that kept the uh, the economy, uh, well, it returned quickly to normal. Mm. Morrison didn't really get much credit for that. Why? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> I mean, the state premiers were getting plenty of praise, but not the prime minister. What was the big difference? This is something that, that exercised the minds of a lot of coalition MPs and certainly ministers at the time. I think some of them suggested that the day they lost the, the election was the day that they set up the national cabinet, you know, that it, it gave premiers uh, a platform that they'd uh, hitherto never been afforded. And I think it was naive to think that ultimately with three Labor premiers that politics wouldn't eventually come into play. They were very effective, very effective at attacking the federal government for um, or blame shifting, if you like, uh, some of the issues that they well, were Well, you do report with. that Morrison was very frustrated that the state leaders wanted autonomy, yet they didn't have to bear the responsibility for the economic consequences of their actions. Well, that's right. But he, he was also mindful that I think, or he took the view at the time, that, that people weren't interested in politics he never really attacked the states. He never really got stuck into them as people mm. in his party thought he should, even over 
the border issues, particularly with Queensland. He was uh, he let the states run over the top of the federal government. Uh, I think in a lot of respects, politically anyway. And and the irony to that was that that uh, <clears throat> a lot of people believe that the federal government should do more, that they should actually take over and wrest control of this thing that's particularly around the borders, uh, the internal borders. But uh, as you know, that the Commonwealth didn't have those powers. So what it really did was was expose actually how the Federation is divided between those powers uh, or how those powers are divided between the Commonwealth and the states at a time of crisis. And, and the Commonwealth um, really did have limited ability and certainly under the Biosecurity Act, they had no power to, to actually direct state officials to do anything. Why did the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, feel it necessary uh, mm. to lead calls for an inquiry into the origins of the virus? This was the other great issue that the government was, was dealing with at the time and, and the Albanese government is gr- still grappling with, indeed the world is still dealing with and will continue to in the future. Scott Morrison admitted in the book uh, that while he was obviously deeply worried about the pandemic, the thing that kept him awake at night was China. And obviously closing the borders with China was a decision without precedent. He was aware of the ramifications. I think Morrison's view that was that someone had to call out China's behaviour. I mean, whether it was malicious cyber activity, espionage, foreign interference, economic coercion or China's military activities in the South China Sea, if Australia didn't, then who? And considering that Australia was the primary victim of some of these activities, particularly on the economic front, then he felt Australia had a sovereign responsibility to call it out. Now, uh, I think there was an element of all that in the decision to push for the WHA inquiry. Uh, He makes the point that it was a very reasonable question to ask. Um, Where did this virus come from and and how did it it originate? Uh, But I don't think you can really claim um, innocence to that point without understanding what the political ramifications of doing that were. And at the time, uh, the Europeans were very happy for Australia to front run them. Um, and some of that's revealed in the book, some of the conversations that Morrison had with European leaders, with Boris Johnson. But at, at the time, they were dealing with, you know, runaway um, infection rates and deaths. So they believed that they needed to deal with what they were faced with at the time, but they were very happy for Australia to front run it. You know, in the end, I think they were very mindful of the fact that Australia had sh- uh, shone a light on some of the other elements of China's behaviour at the time that they were probably aware of but not that enlivened to. That was Simon Benson, political editor for The Australian, and his co-author is Jeff Chambers, his chief political correspondent also at The Australian. Their book, Plagued, Australia's Two Years of Hell, The Inside Story, it's published by Pantera. Well, that's the show, and if you'd like to hear past episodes of Between the Lines, including my recent exchanges with journalist Aaron Patrick on Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party Civil War, and ANU mission specialist Cassandra Steer, she was on the Geopolitics of Space, they're all available online. You can subscribe to the podcast for free. Details on the homepage, or of course, you can just scroll back through your recent podcast feeds. I'm Tom Switzer. Till next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.